going to happen. Stand by playback. And now, live. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday, and guess what? The U.S. Supreme Court just sided with Joe Biden and his open borders buddies and said, you know what? The Border Patrol can cut all that razor wire and open up the door for even more thousands of illegal aliens to flood into America. I'll get into the details of that in just a moment. The decision only came down hours ago. But first, I want to welcome your phone calls. We don't call this the best conversation in talk journalism for nothing. We want you involved in it. And, of course, we've given you a number of ways to do that. 866-HEY-LARS. That's pretty simple. And if you're a naysayer, that is, you disagree with my point of view, I'm glad to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll. Today's question on X, I should start getting in the habit of calling it X instead of Twitter. Do you support having a separate national anthem for black Americans? Number one, I don't think it's necessary. Number two, I think it's actually insulting. It insults the United States of America by suggesting that a great nation that welcomes all, a polyglot nation like the world has never seen before, one that welcomes all faiths, all colors, all genders, these days more than two, apparently. Uh, and then you've got the Super Bowl saying, we're going to play not just the Star Spangled Banner, we're going to play the song called Lift Every Voice and Sing, otherwise known as the Black National Anthem, saying that somehow black Americans either need or want a separate national anthem because the Star Spangled Banner doesn't mean anything to them? I don't think so. I mean, all the black Americans I know, and I know a lot of black people, who say, no, the Star Spangled Banner is our national anthem. I'm part of America. I don't need a separate national anthem for that. That's crazy. So do I support having a separate national anthem for black Americans? Absolutely not. You can vote in the X poll. You'll find it at Lars Larson Show on uh, X. You can also find it on our website if you don't want to go to X. Uh, that's LarsLarson.com. And it's always brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I've always believed in, so I joined a long, long time ago. You can, too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. Now, Friday's ex-poll was just for fun on Friday. Sports Illustrated on Friday, a magazine I don't subscribe to. I don't routinely buy it. I don't even buy the swimsuit edition. But they sent out an email saying, we're firing everybody. All of you are laid off, the entire publication. And what happened right before that? Well, that was when they were putting plus-size swimsuit models on the cover of the swimsuit edition, also putting on some men pretending to be women, known as trans women, uh, were on the cover. Didn't work out so well with their audience. A lot of us predicted that was going to be the result. They did it anyway. Should uh, Did Sports Illustrated kill its own brand with trans men on the swimsuit edition was the question. 95% of you agreed with my yes vote. Only 5% of you said no, but those 5%, 
You would make the best kind of naysayers. I'd love to have somebody try to explain that nonsense. But glad to get your calls. And before I do that, let me tell you what just came down a few hours ago. The U.S. Supreme Court, they were asked by the Biden administration, Texas is insisting on not wanting a flood of 10 to 12,000 illegal aliens coming through Texas to the rest of America. Sounds like uh, New York, Chicago, Philly, and Washington, D.C., Democrat-run cities, they don't want it either, except they don't want to call the guy most responsible for this colossal disaster, this illegal alien invasion. They could call Joe Biden out any time they want. Texas Texas wasn't getting a, a how-do-you-do from Joe Biden, so what they said was fine. We'll pass our own laws. We'll put razor wire on the border. They did it in particular on a place called Eagle Pass, and a specific place within Eagle Pass, Texas, known as Shelby Park. The Texas National Guard went in. Uh, they took it back from the Border Patrol. The Border Patrol got a thank you very much. Here's your hat. What's your hurry? And get out of here. And the Texas National Guard began to actually seal up that major entry point on America's border. And what happened? The Biden administration went to court and said, we need to have permission to cut the razor wire that Texas put up on the border to allow this invasion of 10 to 12,000 illegal aliens every day. And guess what happens? Well, no big surprise. Chief Justice John Roberts sold out America along with, and I was kind of surprised by this, Amy Coney Barrett, arguably one of the most conservative members of the court. I guess she doesn't get that title anymore. She and Roberts joined the three liberal nitwits on the Supreme Court and said, yep, the Biden administration can go down and slice up all that razor wire and reopen the border for the invasion that's now been going on for three years with more than 10 million illegal aliens coming into this country, aided, abetted, and sponsored by Joe Biden. And I'd remind you that Joe Biden during the 2020 campaign, I mean, there there is one there is one campaign promise that Joe Biden has actually made good on. Joe Biden actually promised that he would do this. He admits today this, the border is not secure. He says, I haven't believed that for the last 10 years, and I've said it for the last 10 years. Give me the money. Well, Joe Biden's very good, along with the rest of his family, at saying, give me the money. But what he also said was, here's a quote from the 2020 election campaign. What I would do as president is immediately surge to the border all those people who are seeking asylum. Now, I know that some of you are going to be very, very sympathetic. You're going to say, well, Lars, if people are seeking asylum, we ought to give them a chance. Well, guess what? About 95% of the people who claim asylum when they come into America... When they finally end up years from now in front of an immigration judge, they're going to be told, you have no legitimate claim to asylum. America has very specific laws that says what qualifies you for asylum and what does not. And yet, you know, Joe Biden says anybody looking for asylum, anybody who's claiming asylum, anybody who says the magic word asylum gets in. That's what he promised to do. Now, most of the time, Presidents who make campaign promises make promises that we actually want to see them fulfill. In this case, Joe Biden was making a promise we don't want him to fulfill. And now the U.S. Supreme Court has given the Biden administration permission to take all the barriers that were actually working to hold back the flood of illegal aliens 
and the Biden administration is going to use your tax money paid to members of the Border Patrol to cut all that razor wire down and allow the illegals in. Now, I've had a few emails from people saying, well, Lars, weren't they doing that already? Yeah, they were doing it on a small scale, and then it was being fought out in court. And there was a court of appeals that said, Texas has a right to put up that border wire, uh, the, the wire on the border, the razor wire, and the, the Border Patrol cannot cut it down. Now you've had the U.S. Supreme Court, which has sold out Americans. And I'm going to say that the highest court in the land has now decided that the state of Texas has no right to put up any kind of barrier, because after all, that would be Texas doing what Joe Biden and his friends in Washington, D.C. have refused to do, and that is actually enforce America's immigration laws. Glad to be with you on a Monday and always glad to take your calls. A shout out to our friends in St. Cloud, Minnesota, who listen to Great Talk Radio all day on WJON. That's AM 1240. You can find my show there as well. Coming up in just a moment, we got to talk about why school choice is so American. It's so American. We'll talk about that next. He's the best investment in talk radio, and it's free. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get back to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. I want to talk to our friend Ryan Walters, who's superintendent of schools in the state of Oklahoma, not just a local superintendent. He's also a former U.S. history teacher. Ryan, it's good to have you back. Hi, good, good to be here, and happy uh, School Choice Week to you. Yeah, happy School Choice Week, and I have to say, I know that there are people who say, well, Lars, you have to admit whether you've got a bias in a case or not. I call that a dog in the fight. I don't really have a dog in the fight here. I believe in homeschooling. I believe in charter schooling. And I believe in school choice. I've never benefited from it myself. Uh, my wife and I both went to uh, public schools, uh, different public schools. We didn't know each other in school. But uh, I'm glad to see it being made available because I think the government schools are failing miserably, maybe with Oklahoma as a small exception to that rule. Well, you know, it's funny, I, I'm in the same boat. You know, I, I went to public school growing up, was a public school teacher. My kids attend a public school. But, you know, it's just common sense to allow the parents the ability to choose the school of their choice. We have seen so many issues that's occurred in our public schools. And we've seen private schools and charter schools that, that have met needs for kids that other schools didn't. And so just, you know, the free market works. Uh, you know, it's amazing how many times the free market hasn't been tried in education. But, you know, uh, we love National School Choice Week because it's a great time for parents to tell the stories about how, you know, that other option made a large difference for their kids. You know what I'd love to see you do? Are you going to get a chance to testify to the, say, the Oklahoma State Legislature on this subject? And are you going to get a lot of opposition to the idea of school choice in Oklahoma? Oh, yeah. uh, The Democrats and the teachers union folks always push back hard on this. You know, I'd love to see a, a witness. I know it may be impolitic. You've got to you got to be on your best behavior. There's, you're the superintendent of schools for the state. But I'd love it if a witness showed up in front of any legislature of the Congress and di- directly target the Democrats who oppose this and say, uh, if a family member of yours is on Medicare, 
should they be forced to go to a government pharmacy to fill their prescription? And, of course, you get an automatic no. And if you say, well, if somebody has food stamps or SNAP in your family, should they be forced to go, and these don't exist, but to a government grocery store to buy their groceries with their SNAP benefits? No. And and you can go right down through a list of a ton of just different uh, social welfare programs that still allow people choice. And then when it comes to education, should a kid with a Pell Grant be forced to go to Oklahoma State University rather than a private university? And I think even the Democrats say no. Then why would you force any American kid or his parents to take that child to a government school instead of giving them the same choice you get with SNAP, the same choice you get with uh, with uh, Pell Grants, the same choice uh, Grandma gets with Medicare? Hey, look, you're exactly right. And, you know, I've even had Democrats tell me privately, we're for this policy, but remember, we get our money and our support to the teachers' unions, and I could never publicly say that. I mean, and it's, and it's sad, but, but that is the honest truth. I don't know how you fight the policy unless you literally are just trying to protect the teachers' union, if you're just trying to protect failing schools, because the reality is, as we've seen this in study after study, some Arizona's had school choice universally for 30 years. Guess what? Not only did the kids' scores improve, the public schools' test scores improved, too, because with that competition, it gives them every incentive to look at what best practice is, make the adjustments, make the improvements, because, again, the customer, the parents, are, are, are facilitating that kind of conversation. So, you know, it is a, a success for everyone involved, but you've got to defeat the teachers' unions in order to get across the finish line. Well, and you know what I'd love to ask those people publicly? I mean, I invite liberals and Democrats on this show all the time. They routinely refuse because they don't like the questions. But I'd say, do you represent the people of your district, uh, if it's a member of Congress, or do you represent unions or, or labor, uh, a particular labor union? You know, you know, if, if you ask them, you know, in, in 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 any given school district, what percentage of the constituents in that school district uh, are members of the teachers union? And I would guess you might have hundreds of thousands of people in that school district and you might have a few dozen or maybe even a couple of hundred um, teachers union members. So do you represent them or do you represent the other couple of hundred thousand people in your school district? And most of them would say, oh, I represent the people. And yet you're going to put the labor union's interest first and the other people second. That just that's a non flyer for me. Well, and that's why I appreciate so much of what you've done, because what you've got to do is you've got to make this public argument, because like you just laid out, it's really hard to defend that position publicly. But what they like to do is they like to do all this behind the scenes. They like to throw straw mans out there that oh, all the schools will shut down and all the teachers will be fired at their school choice, which is just such an absurd argument. But they throw these things out there in a drive by fashion. Well, do you support your public school or not? Because if you're for school choice, you don't instead of engaging in an intellectual discussion here, and, and the more, and you notice, look at the successes of the past two to three years in school choice. Parents have had enough. They saw it in COVID. They saw teachers unions fighting to shut down schools while parents were desperately wanting their kids back in, in school getting a good education. And there's no turning back at this point. We've got to keep charging forward. I'm talking to Ryan Walters, who's the Oklahoma State School Superintendent and a former teacher. But I guess one of the things is maybe we have to adopt some harsh realities. And and one of those harsh realities is to say to those Democrats who say, you can't do this, you'll hurt the public schools. If you say, well, 
if the public schools, the government-operated schools, are failing kids and charters or privates or the others are succeeding, shouldn't those public schools fail? And if they say, no, we shouldn't let them fail, then you say, so you're in favor of propping up failing institutions at the expense of the kids. Why would anybody be in favor of that? Because I know I've even heard conservative Republican politicians, Ryan, who say we have to support our great public schools. And on the occasions when I've been able to ask them on the air, because they'll they'll be uh, conservatives, they will sometimes come on and say, hold on, are our schools great right now? And they'll say, well, you know, the routine answer is yes. You say, what percentage of the kids don't even finish? And usually it's around 20 percent. He said, so you get an institution that fails 20% who drop out. And then of the ones that stick, what percentage make the, you know, the proficient remark, uh, proficient marks in reading, writing, and math? And if they say, well, you know, 50, 60%. I said, so you get an institution that fails 20% right off the bat. And of the other 80%, they fail about half of them. Is that a great school? And if it is, tell me why. And, and I think even Republicans don't have an answer for that. No, that's right. And again, the reality is, is what so many times the problem with our politicians is the lack of backbone. Listen, the union's going to fight you. They have millions and millions of dollars on the line that, that requires there to not be competition. Uh, they, they want to support the worst teachers because that means money directly in their pocket. They don't want school choice because guess what? If you go to a different school, charter schools and private schools aren't unionized. So they are going to fight this with all they have. The reality is, Republicans have to have the backbone to go make the case, go win the argument, go look the unions in the eye and say, we, we, we support students, not systems. We are going to be here fighting for kids, and we're, we're not worried about the institution. We're worried about the kids. Well, and maybe what we need to do, the Janus decision says any public school teacher in America who wants to quit the labor union can do it. And if you ask them, do you think what the union does makes schools better, worse, or about the same? Now, the honest ones will say, uh, generally, the union activities and the union demands and everything else make schools worse. And they, they prop up failing teachers and failing systems. So if that's the case, why are you a member of that group? And if they can't give you an answer when they say, well, I have to be a member of the union. No, you don't. Janice's decision from the Supreme Court half a dozen years ago said you don't have to be a member. So if you choose to be a member of a group that helps public schools fail, then aren't you part of the problem? Put some shame on them. Hey, that's exactly right. And remember, these unions are the ones that support critical race theory, that have pushed this gender ideology in our school. They don't want They help to fight against parents uh, being part of their kids' education with parents' rights bills. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible organization that, again, they don't even support good teachers. They support the worst common denominator of teachers because they want money and they want power. And so I, I completely agree with you. Janice has opened the door up for teachers to not have to be in a union, and we should be supporting that all over the country. You know, see, and that's the thing. I, uh, Ryan, you and I are on the same page. It is school choice week, and Ryan Walters is Oklahoma State School Superintendent. If I get a naysayer on that, I'd love to have a teacher who says, yeah, I'm a member of the union. Does it? Does the union make education better or worse? Answer that one. You got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. kids heal faster. 
Good thing you can't transmit disease through the radio. Trust me, you don't want what he has. More with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday and always glad to get to your calls. Let me do that right now. First, a reminder, 866-HEY-LARS, the number to call, uh, the HEY number, uh, 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Naysayers always go to the head of the line. And do you support having a national anthem for black Americans? That is today's poll on X at Lars Larson Show and always brought to you by AMAC. Let me start with uh, Patrick. Hey, Patrick, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, thanks for taking my call. Hey, I wanted to talk about the border situation with Texas, but real quick, can I ring in on the separate but equal national anthem? Sure, go ahead. Tell me, do you think it's a good idea to have two or more national anthems based on uh, skin color? No, but that's just the woke left for you. They want to bring back separate but equal, right? Yeah, they do. It sure sounds like it. Yeah, yeah, free license on that. Hey, the thing with Texas, I don't like that decision any more than you do, but um, I don't I don't think that the Supreme Court made the wrong decision. I don't think they could have made a different decision in keeping with the enumerated powers of the federal government and the powers that the states ceded to the federal government when we went from the original Articles of Confederation in 1776 and then 1789 adopted the Constitution, the defense of the nation borders is very clearly the federal government's responsibility. It's one of the few actual powers and responsibilities that the federal government should have. Okay, but, but let me ask let me ask you a question, Patrick. Question of their legitimacy. Patrick, let me ask you a question. If somebody comes on your property, they're trespassing, right? Correct, and they can still arrest well, Hold on, for you, you don't know where I'm going property. with this. You don't know where I'm going with this. Do you have the power to arrest them for trespass? Uh, yes and no in my state, in most states, no. Okay, and in most cases, even if you said, I'm going to perform a citizen's arrest, but you wait for the police to show up and actually arrest the person for trespass. Now, what if you put up a fence? Are you enforcing trespass law? If I put up a fence, I am not enforcing trespass law per se. No, because all it means is the person who might have trespassed on your property comes up and finds a fence there, and let's say it's tall enough that they can't get over it. They say, why, I would trespass on Patrick's property, except I can't because there's a barrier here. If an illegal alien comes up on the south side of America's border and says, I'm intending to enter the United States illegally. Texas isn't arresting those people for immigration law. They're not enforcing immigration law. They put up a barrier, which means the person isn't physically able to enter the United States illegally. Is that enforcing immigration law? No, however, my relationship with my state or my county sheriff and the law enforcement is much different than the relationship between the state of Texas and the United States federal government. The United States federal government has certain enumerated powers. And And one of them is enforcing our borders and protecting states against invasion. That's specifically in there. Now, ordinarily, we think of invasion as being a foreign army, but does it have to be a foreign army for it to qualify as an invasion? 
Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, if you go back to a lot of the great military thinkers throughout the ages, including Machiavelli and Sun Tzu, the best way to invade a country is to send in settlers and colonizers. Yep, So that's it's right. definitely an invasion at the southern border. And the federal yep. government is definitely abdicating their duty to defend the border. However, the power to enforce the border belongs to the federal government and only the federal government under the United States Constitution. Does that mean so, anybody who puts up I a fence... Like hold on. Decision, Does that mean anybody who puts up a this. fence... Patrick, does that mean anybody who puts up a fence on the southern border is enforcing a border? If they're putting it around their own private property, no. Well, in this ca- in they're this case, Shelby Park in this case isn't Shelby Park public property in the state of Texas? It is public property in the state of Texas, indeed. However, but it's also again, a, a national say, border. So, so if you. Yeah, if you put up a barrier saying we're not going to let you enter this park, it's part of Texas, and we've put up a barrier. Uh, Cities and counties put up fences and, 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 and barriers around parks all day long, don't they? All the time. All day long. All the time. Absolutely right. All I'm saying is... I'm going to go back to that relationship that the states have with the federal government. Yep. I never abdicated my right to fence off my property to the state that I live in or the county that I live in. However, the several states gave that power away to the federal government back in 1789, long before Texas was a state. And as much as I don't like this decision, as much as I think that the case should have never been brought before the court, and I think the court would have been proper to not hear it, saying that the Biden administration has no standing, because the Biden administration has abdicated the duty of the federal government to defend this nation's borders. Agreed. But All I'm saying is, is there, the case, uh, is there more than one way no to choice. skin a cat saying Texas can say, look, we're not enforcing the, <laughs> the border. We're simply putting a barrier around a public park that happens to be on the border. In the same way that if you owned a, a stretch of land that was right on the, uh, the, the southern border with Mexico, and you put up your own fence there saying, I don't want all these illegal aliens to be coming across my property. You're putting up a fence to wall that off from a piece of your property. In the case of Shelby Park, if Texas does the same thing and says, we're putting a barrier up here to stop people from crossing the Rio Grande and entering this public park. Enter wherever you want. You're not entering here. This is our park. Do they have that authority? Power Texas for trying. I mean, power to them for trying. But it would be just like if, say, the county I live in put up an ordinance that says I can't build a fence more than three feet high, and I chose to build a fence that's six feet high, they could come, they could send out their code enforcement folks and take my fence down. And unfortunately, the power to defend the nation's border, I know it's this Texas state park. Counties and states build fences around parks all the time. Yep. But there's a section of that state park that's a national border. And power to Texas for trying to pick up where the federal government refuses to do one of their most basic duties. Yeah, and they certainly are doing that. I appreciate the call. Thanks, Patrick. That's a great, uh, great analysis of it. Let's go to Jeremy in Alabama. Hey, Jeremy, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, sir. Thank you for taking my call. You bet. 
Um, in regards to the separate national anthems, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but segregation was ended back a long time ago. Yep. And everybody's screaming for equality, equality, equality. Well, how is that equality if you're wanting your own national anthem? This national anthem is for this entire country. Everybody. This is not a divided country. That's absolutely right, and a good analysis as well. Let's go to David in Idaho. Hey, David, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? I was just wondering if they could, you know, they don't have to worry about the border. Can't they, isn't the sheriff's department the highest authority in the land? So they no, well, he's the highest, he's the, law, he's the basic law enforcement authority law in his correct. county. So in his county. That, that's correct. So in this county where they have their park, they do not have to let law enforcement officers from the federal government in. I think that's a no, but then you'd be assuming that that park is not part of the United States. Does federal law enforcement no, have no. a bill? Well, go ahead. No, I was saying that it is, it is part of the state of Texas. Now, and it's also part of the United States of America. I get that. David, thanks for the call. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. We'll talk about In-N-Out Burger fleeing Oakland. Hi. Sergeant Betsy Bratner, who is Betsy Bratner-Smith, I should say, who is a spokesperson for the National Police Association, and she is a retired police sergeant. Uh, sergeant Smith, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be back with you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. I haven't had a chance to say that to you uh, this year. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a crazy year. And I, I, I want to mention In-N-Out Burger fleeing from Oakland, California, but why don't we start with this? What is the single most dangerous square mile in all of America? Well, that would be uh, near the airport there in Oakland, California. And, uh, you know, it's so unfortunate. I've flown in there many, many times when I I lived in Chicago, and uh, I went to the In-N-Out Burger there near the airport. And uh, but uh, because everyone from the Midwest goes to In-N-Out Burger whenever they can. Um, But here's the thing. Car theft is up uh, 50 percent in uh, Oakland and uh, and around the airport there. If anyone's ever been there, there, of course, are multiple gas stations where you fill up your rental car, things like that. These gas stations and businesses around there get hit often up to a dozen times a day. Um, with car thefts, retail thefts, things like that, a lot of the crimes that occur are considered nonviolent, so the police can't pursue, they can't chase. And uh, as the officer in that article we sent you said, you know, we're we're totally screwed. And uh, it's really unfortunate for what was once a a decent area for folks. Well, I've been to Oakland myself. I mean, I live a long ways away now, but... but it, it... It just strikes me. Let me ask you a question about the car theft before I go anywhere else. And that is, these days we talk about car thieves. And, you know, 20 years ago, for the most part, car thefts were, uh, you know, somebody would steal your car while it was unoccupied. Are most of these sort of occupied car uh, thefts where people are carjacked? Or are we making a distinction between those two? Well, legally, you have to make a distinction between the, the two 
car theft again, and this is Alameda County uh, prosecutor's rule here, a car theft where somebody goes in, hot wires your car, whatever they do, that's a nonviolent crime. Now, carjacking, where somebody yanks you out of your car, um, that is uh, indeed a violent crime, okay. although it's not always prosecuted as a, a violent crime. But Oakland also has, you know, homicides. Uh, they have record homicides for the last three years um, and uh, and so much more violent crime. And they can't keep cops. I know everybody's shocked by that. But uh, to the point where uh, a few weeks ago we were talking about the city of Alameda, which is kind of an Oakland suburb. Um, they were offering $25,000 bonuses wow. uh, to police officers who would uh, come and stay. And then after you complete training, another $50,000 check. I'm, I'm a 64-year-old retired cop. I almost went. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> and, you were tempted, uh, huh? You know, big, big bucks. And then go do a year <laughs> and then leave, right? If you survive it. Um, but you know, police officers are, are, you know, they're, they're, they're tired, they're aggravated. And a, and a big part of it is, you know, cops, we kind of, we don't mind dealing with crime. That's what we do for a living. But Alameda County, where Oakland is, they have a district attorney named Pamela Price. She is one of the George Soros installed prosecutors. And she's one of the worst. There's actually a recall. Uh, underway, um, a a couple of actually a parent group, a couple of parents whose um, uh, there's one parent whose son was murdered. They're trying to recall her now. That has been successful in the Bay Area before. You know they oh, yeah. uh, in San Francisco. You know they were able to recall yep. Chesa Bodine, but they were not able to in L.A. to recall uh, George Gascon. So, uh, but people are people are very upset. And because they see that when you, uh, you know, when you don't prosecute real criminals and Pamela Price is she's all about prosecuting cops. She went back uh, in some cases, 15 years to bring charges against police officers in cases where they had been cleared. Now, is that um, popular with a- the local population, Sergeant Smith? I mean, because I, I guess what it comes down to is they might recall her. But if, if people are cheering when they go back and prosecute cops for one thing or another and the rest of violent crime is is doing a job on the town and on the people who live there, I would expect the law abiding citizens. And, and even in a high crime area like Oakland, most of the people there are law abiding citizens. So it's the non law abiding citizens that are preying on the law abiding citizens. You'd think they want to get rid of this lady. Well, you're absolutely right, but you have a complicit media that, you know, talks about these old cases, you know, and, and you also have an, you know, a class of activists and politicians who say that, hey, we have to do this to make things more equitable. You know, there's always that word um, equity, not equality. And uh, but what happens in most of these cases, and we've seen this around the country in uh, Austin, Texas, and in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, Seattle and Tacoma, Washington, most of these cases where we charge these cops criminally, um, they're bad cases, and so the cops end up, uh, you know, they they end up uh, being found innocent, and the county, the prosecutors, the taxpayers, end up spending millions of dollars. Uh, that could have been spent keeping residents well, safe. So, and Sergeant I, you know, Smith, are you thinking of the, the, there was a resolution of a case in Tacoma not long ago? I don't live in Tacoma, mm-hmm. but they resolved it, 
Uh, they said the police killed this guy, you know, without reason. And the jury said, no, they killed him for good reason. And uh, the cops, you know, were all given the you know, bums rush. But I think they settled out for a half a million bucks for each of the officers. So in other words, you, you lose three good cops and you have to pay a million and a half dollars, you know, to pay them off having spent already hundreds of thousands or more to, to attempt to prosecute them and put a sour taste in everybody's mouth about ever going to work for that police agency. It's like nobody wins out of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, you're, you're right. And, and, you know, really since uh, the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, you know, to go back to 2014, where so much time and energy and money was spent trying to prosecute uh, the officer in that case, and uh, you know, three times he was investigated and found to have done nothing wrong. And and again, we see this all around the country. What's happening in Alameda County is people, especially in high crime neighborhoods, are now getting incredibly frustrated with the DA there, with Pamela Price, and uh, and so they're going to try this recall. You know, we'll we'll see what happens, but. You know, you you make such a good point that most people are not criminals and are the National Police Association's uh, polling finds most people want more cops in their neighborhood. Most people want their cops to get paid a decent wage. And most people uh, are concerned about the safety and the mental health of their police officers. Absolutely right. That's Sergeant Betsy Bratner-Smith from the National Police Association. Sergeant Smith, it's good to talk to you again. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. And now, Lars I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. The interesting part of it is that, you know, yes, it is very necessary for financial services, but not only. Sure. You know, it's also good for school enrollment. It's also good for health, who actually got a vaccination or not. Uh, it's, it's very good to actually f- to get your subsidies, you know, from the government. Yeah, from the government. That's what it's important to. Biological digital ID. And yeah, they're talking about it at WEF, the World Economic Forum. Yeah, this gathering of elites. And uh, they, they want to tell us how to run our lives. And they say, it'd be really nice. We just assign everybody a digital bio- biological ID. And then we'll be able to track whether or not they're, they're vaccinated. We'll be able to track all your social service benefits and your subsidies from the government. If anybody likes that idea, this host does not. I don't like the idea at all. And I think we ought to tell the World Health Organization to pound sand. In fact, right now, the WHO, who just about four years ago now, was lying to the world about COVID. Well, now they're saying, we have to get ready. We have to get everybody signed up to the World Health Organization Pandemic Treaty so the world can prepare for disease X. That's what's coming from the Director General of the WHO, a lying group of people mostly loyal to China 
and, of course, to Bill Gates, who gives them a lot of their private money as well. He actually spoke. Tedros spoke in front of the World Economic Forum in Davos, and he says he hopes countries will reach a pandemic agreement by May. In other words, for America to give up its national sovereignty and just hand off all of these decisions, whether they're about a disease or any other kind of public health concern, that we're supposed to hand this off to the WHO. No way. I think we ought to tell the WHO to pound sand. I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw Tedros. And the idea that somehow, well, you have to have digital ID and you got to have uh, preparations for disease X and just let us make all the decisions for you. Forget about that, Tedros. We're not going there. Glad to have you with me on a Monday. Always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll or X poll now, do you support having a separate national anthem for black Americans? I don't. And in fact, I haven't heard any good defense of that idea. Despite that, the NFL has decided one more time that they have to play the Black National Anthem before the game. The song is actually called Lift Every Voice and Sing. As far as I'm concerned, the only national anthem America needs is the Star Spangled Banner. It's absolutely beautiful, and it represents the country well. And having a separate national anthem for people based on skin color or some other consideration makes no sense at all in fact it's only divisive but you can find today's poll at lars larson show and at LarsLarson.com. it's always brought to you by amac the association of mature american citizens amac has the conservative values i believe in i join you should too just go to amac.us you can call them up and join as well 888-262-2006. AMAC is better. Better for you and better for America. To your calls on this Monday, let's start with Mike. Mike, we've been talking about the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court, on a 5-4 to four vote announced just hours ago, has sold out Americans and has told Texas, you have no business putting up razor wire to try to keep out the flood of illegal aliens that Joe Biden has admitted and the Supreme Court effectively gave the Border Patrol the power to cut all that razor wire down and open the doors to more illegal aliens. What should we make of that? Well, I'd try a couple different angles on this one. The first one would be, why don't we just invoke the Biden doctrine and ignore the Supreme Court like he's done with the student forgiveness loan program? There you go. I mean, because and, and Mike's right, because because Biden was told by the Supreme Court, you do not have the authority to simply pay off student loans. And yet he's done, even though he was told no on his larger endeavor, which was, I think, four hundred and fifty billion dollars, almost half a trillion dollars. He's managed to pay off about one hundred and thirty five billion. And there was another tranche of that announced just a couple of days ago. Yeah, some of the other things I would uh, recommend or think uh, or wish. <laughs> uh, the first one is um, is why do we? Uh, and you're not you're not. It's not just you, but others do the same thing. It's always the Biden administration or the Biden this or Biden that for all these uh, draconian policies. Why don't we just start labeling Democrat uh, border policy or Democrat this? So if Biden is not the nominee, right, he's off the hook because he's not there. But we've been saying Biden this, Biden that, and somebody can step in and say, "Well, hey, that was Biden." If we say Democrat, we hang it on their party, uh, and there is no scapegoat if uh, somebody else comes in on behalf of Biden and the president. Well, I I can see that argument, although I think the first question, let's say uh, the current talk is that they may put Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan in as a replacement for Joe. 
Now, that would have to happen sometime between now and summertime when the Democrats make their decision. We already know what the Republican nominee is going to be, and that's Donald Trump, and thank God for that. But if they put Whitmer in, some of the first questions she's going to get is, do you subscribe to the policies of the previous administration, which is the Biden administration? And, uh, and, and I guess making it more diffuse by saying, well, it's a Democrat policy. These are the policies of a specific president. And, and then you can ask uh, members of Congress or uh, a replacement nominee for Joe. You can say, are you going to go with those? Are you going to go a different direction and get them to define it? Well, I mean, you just ask her, do you still subscribe to the Democrat policy of open borders? <clears throat> I think that'd be a reasonable question to ask, and I appreciate the call, Mike. Thanks very much. Let's go to Ray in Alabama. Hey, Ray, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I think I may have a partial solution anyway for Texas. Okay. Now, I could be it? wrong, but I would think that a large portion of the border is owned by private individuals. It is. Yep. Now, if he were to give a tax incentive or something to those individuals to put up a fence on the border, that would take up a large portion of it, would it not? You, if When you say he, do you mean President Biden? No, 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 the Texas governor. Oh, Texas governor. Yeah, they say, yeah. Right. Well, it would solve the problem then, on the private lands, but what does it do about the public well, lands, for instance, the, the, the center point of this decision was Shelby Park in Eagle Pass, Texas, which is public property, not private property. So all that would happen is if you put fences on on the various pieces of private property, a bunch of the border is public property. The illegals would just stream through at the available location, which is what they've been doing in Shelby Park. Right. But I also have a translation. All the Democrats are saying that the border is secure, their definition of the border are the ports of entry, not some little stretch in Arizona or Texas. That's right. I think you're absolutely right about it. I appreciate the call, Ray. I know we're close to the break. Let's do Josh very quickly. Josh, what's on your mind? I was referring to uh, back to my vehicle. Uh, back to when you said that the police and how they're being charged with shootings and all that other shit. Yep. Drop words like that. I can't let them on the air. So we had to dump that comment because I get in big trouble with the FCC if swear words make it to the air. So try to keep it clean, folks. And it is a family show. I don't swear myself. I don't do it because I think it's a bad idea. Coming up in a moment, Gen Z has reinvented slacking off, introducing a new work trend called Bare Minimum Mondays. We'll talk about that in a moment. We all make resolutions this time of year. No need to adjust your volume. He's just that loud. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. As I mentioned before the break, Gen Z has reinvented slacking off. And they got a brand new work trend, and they call it Bare Minimum Mondays. Are younger generations shaping themselves into kind of a wasted generation? I thought we'd talk about it with Zachary Marshall, who is editor-in-chief for Campus Reform. Zachary, welcome back. And since I haven't said so beforehand, uh, uh, Happy New Year to you. 
Thank you, and Happy New Year to you. It's great to be back. I don't understand this at all, because uh, I understand every generation, probably through throughout thousands of years, has said, this new generation, they're kind of lazy. Except that this time, it does seem to be right. And it's almost, it's become a kind of a cottage industry to say, uh, I'm going to be as lazy as I possibly can be. Not every Gen Zer, but too many of them are saying, let's figure out new ways to deliver the bare minimum. Yeah, you're absolutely right. What we're seeing now is a complete uh, attitude shift from previous generations. I'm a millennial, and I remember boomers and Gen X accusing my generation of being lazy. But that was more about how to adapt in the workplace with social media and new technology about working smarter instead of harder. This we're seeing with uh, bare minimum Mondays, as you mentioned, and with lazy girl jobs and with quiet quitting. Uh, Gen Z is looking for the easy way out in every possible scenario, whether it's on campus or off campus. They'd rather have uh, great inflation and um, remote jobs that they can just put the bare minimum into rather than try and achieve something. Well, and Zachary, the thing I don't understand about it is I've told people, uh, people early on in my radio career said, Lars, you haven't really worked in radio till you've been fired. Well, now I've been in for 50, almost 50 years. I've never been fired. And they said, how do you avoid getting fired? And I said, make yourself the most valuable member of the team. If you possibly can, figure out what it is that's valued and then make yourself the person they never want to fire. That seems pretty simple. Now now we've got a bunch of people who say if it's lazy girl jobs or, you know, bare minimum Mondays, it's going to be easy for the boss to figure out who to give the pink slip to and Pink slips are almost inevitable in almost every industry, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I don't think anyone should consider themselves irreplaceable. What we're seeing in the last six months is that trend exactly. We are seeing uh, employers, especially small business owners, you know, shy away from um, hiring uh, recent college grads because they know that colleges are not preparing them adequately for the workforce. 91% of small business owners in America think that, um, Gen Z employees um, are unfit to hold on a job, and over 50% of small business owners report that their Gen Z employees have wildly inaccurate um, expectations for what they should be paid. So we're seeing just this complete misalignment between, you know, the Puritan work ethic, the um, how to work hard and until you make it how to keep your head down at work, all those intergenerational life lessons that I learned and that other generations learned, there's a complete break between that tradition and what we're seeing now. Talking to Zachary Marshall, who's editor-in-chief for Campus Reform. And when I said that before about trying to make myself the most valuable person, I don't, I've mm-hmm. never thought I was irreplaceable. In fact, I remember having lunch with a friend of mine who said, hey, I've got a great deal. I'm locked in for the next few years. And about two weeks later, he had a pink slip. And I thought, well, that didn't work <laughs> out so well. But, but what I try to do is I'm just risk-averse. I want to make a pink slip mm-hmm. as unlikely as possible. And, and again, if you're delivering value... And somebody says, well, I got to lay five people off out of a crew of 20. You just want to make it as unlikely as possible that you're one of the five. You want to be one of the 15 that gets to stick around. So why in the world do they think this is going to work out long term, especially when they aspire to another job, another position, and they go to the, you know, the prospective employer and he or she asks around about them and says, well, what do you know about this person? Well, they turn in the minimum. (laughs) 
<laughs> you say, okay, I'll hire somebody else. I mean, it just seems so self-defeating. But again, that'll probably just uh, generate some more ire from the person saying, you see, I keep trying for better jobs and nobody wants to hire me. Well, maybe that's because you're a, you know, turn in the minimum kind of person. And and in that case, it, it, the punishment is going to be fierce. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I say in my op-ed, part of this has to do with COVID. The reason um, that this is happening is because Gen Z has never been tested before. Their, most of their experience happened during the pandemic when they did everything over Zoom, whether it was school or work, and got away with cutting corners. They never were tested like people my age were. You know, I graduated college at the um, worst part of the Great Recession. There were no jobs, and everyone who did get a job pretty much had to do two, you know, two jobs at once. So you had to learn how to hustle and make yourself valuable and make yourself um, worthy of employment at that point. So we, you know, people my age have that memory, and we bring that attitude to the workplace even now. Gen Z has suffered from decadence and luxury. I mean, Zachary, is anybody in Gen Z? trying to wake up the, their own generation and say, look, this is a bad direction to go, and it doesn't have good long-term prospects for you. Now, the one uh, silver lining I can point to here is that um, I am an adjunct professor. I've taught at both public and private universities, and the one exception in this generation to this trend are the military students. I cannot speak highly enough of how motivated and dedicated um, active military and ROTC students are. So, you know, I think we need to figure out what is it about those individuals and how can we kind of bottle that and replicate it throughout the rest of the generation across this country. So, I, you know, we need to look at them for inspiration. Well, I think you and I have both seen that story about the economics professor, the econ professor Kendrick Morales at Spelman College, which is, that's one of the HBCUs, right? And he says, yep. they, they fired me because I wouldn't cave in when the student said, make the home, make the coursework easier and give us higher grades. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. So the college ends up firing him instead of the students. Oh, absolutely. And this is kind of why I've been so critical of Gen Z in my op-ed, in my writing for campus reform, is that Kendrick Morales was fired because of the pressure the students put on the administration to make him double down on grade inflation and quitting and canceling assignments or making them easier. Gen Z is doing it to themselves. They are, um, we're given an unfair hand with COVID, yes, but they are not victims. Every um, thing that's happening to them is a self-inflicted wound. Um, we're seeing the same thing at Stanford University and the new school where they are creating blacklists of professors who wouldn't cancel assignments because they felt traumatized by the news uh, at the new school uh, last year. They demanded all A's for a whole semester for everyone on campus. So it's there's a difference between what we see in past generations and what we see now. I don't think we've ever seen an entire generation, you know, champion, you know, protest with their own mediocrity before. Well, but, but Zachary, does Spellman realize what they're going to do to their own brand? If they say, well, you know, we hired this new guy. Well, how's he working out? Well, he got great grades at Spellman, but you know, Spellman, mm -hmm. they'll hand out great grades to anybody. I mean, you're, they're going to ruin their own brand or do, do the people who run that university or any of the universities understand what they do to their own brand when they say, well, here's a straight A econ student from Spellman, except he knows what most straight A students from Spellman know. 
it, it, it downgrades everybody who graduates from that school, doesn't it? It absolutely does, but they have no self-awareness about it because the trend extends not just from HBCUs, but also to the Ivy League. You know, even at uh, Yale and Harvard, you know, over the last 50 years, we're seeing the, the proportion of grades being assigned that are A's or B's, you know, increase exponentially over the last 50 years. So it's, it's an institution-wide problem. And when everyone does it, when everyone is guilty in inflating grades artificially, people lose the distinction between what a grade is and what knowledge or skills were acquired. So, but that kind of fits into the last idea of equity. It doesn't matter if everyone doesn't know what it is. As long as everyone has the same outcome, everything's fine, according to them. Unbelievable. That's Zachary Marshall. Zach, thank you very much. That's Zachary Marshall, who's editor-in-chief at Campus Reform. Coming up in a moment, over the weekend, we got the very tragic news. Two Navy SEALs declared dead. Their bodies have not been found. And yet Joe Biden, the commander-in-chief, these two were on a really, really tough assignment. They're dead or declared dead at this point. Their bodies have not been found. And yet Joe Biden says nothing about it. We'll talk about that and get to your calls next. The Lars Larson Show. Are you looking for more in this world? No need for a strong Wi-Fi signal. His voice will reach you. This is Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday. And over the weekend, the very sad news that the U.S. Navy has now declared two of its Navy SEALs dead. They were on a really tough mission. They were trying to raid a small ship that was carrying what they believed to be Iranian-supplied advanced conventional weapons. And these two SEALs were sent out to raid this ship, and uh, and they disappeared. Now, their bodies have not been found. There's been a 10-day search off the coast of Somalia. And now the Biden administration, the, the Pentagon, has declared that these two have been declared dead. But as I said, their bodies have not been found. Well, as of this morning, Joe Biden hasn't said one word about these missing SEALs, nor today about the fact that over the weekend, the U.S. military finally said we're going to have to declare that they have deceased. They have died. We just don't know where they are. I mean, this is the same Joe Biden who, when he was uh, in uh, at Dover, Delaware, uh, after the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, 13 heroes, members of the military, who were being brought home, they had died because of a completely avoidable terrorist bombing that happened. Um, uh, the background to that is that the military knew who the bomber was. There were snipers who said, that's the bad guy. Can we take him out? And they were told under the rules of engagement, they were not allowed to take him out. So the bomb goes off. 13 service members are killed. Uh, a great number were badly wounded. And uh, when he went to the transfer of those bodies uh, as they were being brought back from Afghanistan, he kept looking at his watch like, I got somewhere else to be. And he still has not said their names out loud. And yet, here's uh, here's Joe Biden 
uh, two Navy SEALs on a mission that's an absolutely critical mission to interdict Iran-supplied advanced conventional weapons on their way somewhere where they likely would be used on either other people or even American service members. We've had something like 140 different attacks in the Middle East in just the last couple of months on American military. He snubbed a portion of a Medal of Honor ceremony honoring a Vietnam veteran. You know, he got in the middle of it, and then he just walked off. He's attempted to fire military personnel for refusing the jab. He's used Marines as a backdrop during a speech because politics comes first with Joe Biden. The fact is his administration continues to downplay Iran-backed attacks against U.S. troops in the Middle East, even after 140 attacks have resulted in at least 70 injuries to U.S. personnel. And now we've got two SEALs who've gone missing, declared dead at this point, and Joe Biden doesn't have a single word to say about it. Glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our poll on X. You can find that at Lars Larson Show. Also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. Let's go to Richard in California. Hey, Richard, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars. Sorry to go backwards, but you were talking about uh, the Supreme Court uh, saying that you don't have to be involved in a, a union as a teacher and uh, as public as employee. Yeah. Heard, yeah, as soon yeah as all public, that, all I, public employees, um, including teachers, but a lot of other public employees as well. Uh, okay. Well, all I know is that I remembered clear as a bell walking into a friend's classroom in a junior high and seeing up on the wall. A, um, a flyer poster uh, that was, it sounded like it was from the mafia. It was very aggressive and uh, uh, threatening, very threatening, that if you don't go along with our union um, uh, strike, uh, you're going to be shunned. And you're, I mean, it just went on and on and on. It was vicious. And I just thought, are you kidding me? I mean, it's one thing for them to think it and even do it, but then to publish it on the wall? And, and, and what uh, business does an announcement like that have in a child's classroom? No matter what age right. the child, and especially, I would say, if they're high school kids, and the kids walk in every day and see this announcement on the wall, they're invariably they're going to read it. And what message do they get? That unions call the shots. And, and, and I would argue unions call the shots to the detriment of children in public schools. And uh, and yeah. I think unions are one of the worst things that ever happened to public schools. And I, I would encourage, you know, that in Florida, uh, they they have an, an amazing number of people, uh, teachers who are quitting the union because of the Janus decision that I mentioned, which came about. It might be eight years ago now. It might be, be as little as six. But essentially, I've talked to Mark Janus before, the guy who was at the center of the decision and uh, who brought the case. And he's actually a liberal Democrat, but he said he didn't want the unions telling him what to do. And so he said, I, I, I don't want to belong to this group anymore. And he had to go all the way to the Supreme Court, and they decided that any public uh, workers, so this doesn't apply to private sector, but it applies to anybody who works for the government in the United States, is allowed to not give their money to the labor union. And uh, and right. I don't know, I, I really, you you might have heard me, uh, suggesting the superintendent of schools from Oklahoma. I wish 
when teachers call, I will ask them things like, do you think the union uh, uh, does right by kids when it comes to education? And they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's about, and I'll say, hold on. The union will defend teachers that are bad teachers so they can keep their jobs. Is that good for the kids? And they say, well, the person has a right to their job. Well, there is no right uh, to a job. You can get a job. You can also lose a job. But if you have a labor union that will defend indefensible activities by an employee and keep them on the payroll, what does that say to the rest of the teachers who consider themselves, rightly so, as highly trained professionals? If your labor union will defend somebody who's doing a bad job or who's even harming children from being fired, what does that do to you? If you're in a group where the, you know, the organization uh, that, that represents you as a teacher is willing to defend uh, teachers who are bad, bad for kids, and you say, uh, doesn't that degrade the entire profession? Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, could so I what do we do? And so on? my suggestion is, as many teachers as possible, quit the union. And I would suggest you try something, Richard, to find out how many public school teachers there are in California. I'm, I'm willing to bet it's probably, I don't have the number right in front of me, it's probably a couple of hundred thousand. And so if you have a couple of hundred thousand teachers and each teacher gives about a thousand dollars in union dues every year, that's a couple of hundred million dollars. And then ask the union, how much of that money actually gets spent on represent, you know, representing the members of the union in bargaining and settling grievances and, and all the rest of that, the, the actual work of the union. And they'll tell you, usually it's about one dollar in six. And if you say, well, what happens to the other $5 out of 6 And they say, we spend it on politics, almost exclusively for liberal Democrats. And, that's, and if you say, but I'm a teacher, I'm not a liberal Democrat, and maybe 30 40% of teachers are not liberals, but their money is going to fund liberals in public office. And you say, well, hold on, so you're taking money from me as a teacher. You're spending a tiny fraction of it on actually representing me as a labor union, and then you spend the rest to support people running for office that I completely disagree about. What sensible person would allow that to go on? Yeah, it's, it, the whole thing is upside down, and the pressure that can come from uh, other teachers and uh, other union members uh, has, I'm positive, has driven people out of teaching because you, you just get tired of being paranoid about uh, being shunned and everything else. Can I put in a, a quick vote on your uh, your ex question about? Yeah, this? what do you think about? Should we have a black national anthem? Well, the thing that came to my mind right away was one nation, one nation under God, indivisible. And that's the way to look at it, Richard. Thanks for the call. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. the zoom meeting you actually want to be at this is the lars larson show welcome back to the lars larson show i've got nothing personal against uh, ron DeSantis, but the fact is i'm glad to see him out of the race i think the 
nominee for the Republican Party is going to be Donald Trump. Now, he, I happen to be a Trump partisan, so I'm in favor of Trump getting the nomination. I think it, it did bring some value to the campaign to hear some other voices in there, only because it raises some other issues. But is the withdrawal of Ron DeSantis just announced this weekend a win for the GOP? I thought I'd put that to Terry Schilling, our friend who's the president of the American Principles Project. Terry, how are you? Lars, thank you so much for having me. Love coming on. Well, thank you. What what should we make of the fact that Ron DeSantis finally figured out there is no path to victory or the nomination, and he dropped out on Sunday? So that leaves it essentially Donald Trump and the rhino Republican Nikki Haley. Well, look, I, I think tomorrow night, um, you know, or you know, we're going to figure out, you know, find out a lot about uh, where the GOP electorate is. My gut says that uh, you know it's the same as what it was. In Iowa, which is a Donald Trump landslide victory um, by a major margin, and this race hopefully will be over by the time it gets to South Carolina. I, my, my my gut instinct is that Nikki Haley will lose in New Hampshire and uh, will have to draw you know drop out before it goes to her home state where she gets kicked in the rear end. There, um, I, I just I think that the Republican electorate understands what time it is and what the threats are and who the best person is to deliver victories, and that's Donald Trump. He's the only one that really understands the full weight and threat uh, of this administrative state that we're suffering under right now. I mean, does that make Nikki Haley then becomes the Kamala Harris of the Republican Party? She can't <laughs> even get to her home state, and she can't move the needle enough, and so she ends up, you know, uh, that's how Harris went out. Harris didn't even get to a primary before she dropped out, and then Joe Biden brings her on as the affirmative action hire. Yeah, look, I don't, I, I don't see any scenario in which Donald Trump chooses Nikki Haley. Oh as no, no. His don't even go there. <laughs> you know, I, I think that Donald Trump wants to actually be sworn into office before you know, we uh, not have to suffer any assassination attempts. To be, you know, <laughs> funny about it, but you know, the the reality is is that you know he understands what time it is. He knows that Nikki Haley doesn't really bring anything to the party. Um, he's going to look for someone that actually expands his reach and helps him accomplish his agenda. And that's not Nikki Haley. She's a neoliberal. She is the party of the past. She is the George W. Bush wing of the party. Um, and that's not who Republicans are. We're, we're more the party of America. We're more the party of families and not the party of big corporations and, and the warmongers that want to start more wars in the Middle East. And the deep state. Why is it so many of these very wealthy donors chose to put a bunch of money behind Nikki Haley at the last minute? Well, I, look, I think they see her as an attractive, well-spoken woman that, uh, you know, can speak well. And I, I think that they want to get rid of Donald Trump, and they think that she's the best vehicle to do that. The reality is, is that she's not a good vehicle. She, Nikki Haley on the debate stage with a Gavin Newsom or Michelle Obama or even Joe Biden would perform horribly. And I don't think people realize that yet, and I don't think they want to face that truth, but she would pander. She, she, she goes, she is Democrat light, right? You hear all I, I hear, ever hear her talk about is that she's a woman and that women are girl bosses and then they can do change. No one's ever denied that women can affect the world. No one's ever denied that women can actually bring good things to this world. It is a weird uh, obsession that she has. And I think that people are tired of all this identity politics garbage. They're tired of the race. They're tired of the gender stuff. They want to move on and they want to actually get to solutions for the American people. I'm talking to Terry Schilling, who's president of American Principles. You notice she's just played the race card again, too. Did you see that? 
Yeah, she said that she got, you know, bullied every day in school for the color of her skin. It's just so tiresome, Lars. Like, I grew up in the 90s, and I know she's a lot older than me, but, you know, I didn't look at color. I didn't look at race. I, my heroes were Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal, Anthony Hardaway, you know, <laughs> Scottie Pippen, all these people. Like, my heroes and everyone's heroes, we didn't care about what their color of their skin was. We cared about what they did and what they could accomplish and what they brought to the table. And, and so I just I think it's cheap. I think it's pathetic. And I think that if we really want to, you know, fix this country and restore it to its greatness, we're not going to get into these, these fights with the Democrats about who's, who's more of a, of a racial minority or who's more of a gender minority. We're just going to focus on solving things for the American people. Well, she also seems to be tone deaf to me. Um, and, and people say, you just don't like her because she's not Trump. No. When she comes out and tells me the standard Democrat line about illegal aliens who are illegal aliens, they're not undocumented uh, immigrants because you don't immigrate to a country by telling the country, I don't give a damn about your laws. I'll, I'll violate them if it benefits me. That's not who we need in America. We need people who say, I want to be part of a country. And if you want to be part of a country, you go by that country's rules, except that's not convenient. But she's completely sympathetic to illegal aliens say, well, they're just trying for a better life. So's every criminal out there who says the laws don't bother, you know, don't don't matter to me. I'll violate the laws if it puts me ahead financially, which is what they're saying. And she's sympathetic to that. Has she not figured out that immigration is not just an existential threat to America, but it's one of the biggest issues now for American voters, especially conservatives? Well, Lars, you said it best. This is not immigration. This is an invasion, right? And then I think the thing we talked about this, I think, last week is, is that she wants us to assume the best in all these people that are coming over the border. I'm old school, Lars, in that my parents taught me never to talk to strangers, and that respect is earned, not given. We should not assume that the people coming over the border illegally are good people of goodwill. We should actually not trust this system, right? This is people that are willing to break your laws just to get there, get here so that they can do the best for themselves. They don't care about the rest of us. Right. Like I would never illegally immigrate to another country unless I was a fleeing like a Holocaust type situation. Like I understand people fleeing China. I understand people fleeing other third world countries where there's mass genocide and oppression. But these are people that are coming from nations that they can't fix themselves. They should focus on their own nations and fixing their own countries before they come here. We, if they can't fix their own country, they can't fix ours. And they're going to be a drain in our system as well. And I don't well, think that's bigoted. I think that's common no. sense. No, I think it is, too, because her parents emigrated to Canada, then emigrated to the United States. They did it legally. I want some reporter to ask her, your parents came here legally. They went through the process. It wasn't the easiest way to get here. What are you saying to everybody else in America who went through all the hoops and all the costs and all the bother to come here legally? If you say all you had to do was get a ticket to Mexico City and then walk across the border and do it illegally, were your parents fools or are you simply being a hypocrite because your parents did it legally and now you're supporting the people who did it illegally? I can't wait for some enterprising reporter before Nikki Haley fails you know, and just falls out of sight uh, to ask her that question. Terry Schilling, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so very much. Thanks, Lars.
That is Terry Schilling, the president of the American Principles Project. Glad to get your emails uh, at uh, talk at lawrencelarson.com. Check out my Instagram feed. Yeah, I got a face for radio, but it works. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. We'll do that in a moment, and you can go vote in our poll on X. You can find that on X at Lars Larson Show. Brand new poll question every day. My friend, the former district attorney, Josh Markey, and we've known, our, known each other for more than 40 years, He's really good because he can turn on a dime. I had planned to talk to him about the new Alec Baldwin indictment for involuntary manslaughter. But, Josh, if you wouldn't mind, within literally the last few minutes, we've learned that the U.S. Supreme Court has decided on a case involving the state of Texas trying to keep out the invasion of illegal aliens that Joe Biden has been inviting. Now, I'm a Donald I Trump partisan. Say. You're a Joe Biden guy. But let me ask you this. Yep. Let's talk. Let's talk legalities. This Constitution says that immigration law is to be enforced by the federal government. Does that mean that when the Texas legislature said, we're going to pass a law that says you can't come into our country as a foreign national unless you come in legally? Is Texas allowed to have such a law? Generally not. I mean, states can do things, and obviously uh, border states in particular choose to enact, and, and Texas has done a lot of and that's where the, this case, this case is actually about something very specific. Um, there was a, uh, the Border Patrol, which works for the federal government, had torn down some uh, razor wire uh, that, the, that the Texas National Guard, and although they're the National Guard, they're, they're, they haven't been federalized, so they're still under the power of the Texas governor. And a lower court had said, well, the Border Patrol couldn't do this. In a split decision, not along, yes, the three liberals voted, but then... Uh, Amy Coney Barrett and John Roberts Amy joined Coney them. Barrett, probably one of the most conservative members, um, voted to say, no, we'll vote with the federal government. I wouldn't take a great deal out of that. Um, there's, gonna, there's a lot of fighting, obviously, in the border as to who, who's going to exercise authority. And the fact of the matter is that you have states like in, in Texas, where the Texas does exercise the ultimate authority, however, is going to be whether you're a Democrat or Republican and a supporter of Biden or of, of, of Trump, it is going to be with the federal government. There are certain things that just are have federal supremacy, things like treaty obligations and uh, things like that. Well, it's, but let me ask you, you know, I always tell my audience I'm not a lawyer, but but in this case, I understand that immigration itself has to be enforced by the federal government. You know, California can't decide, well, we want a lot of foreign, bunch of foreign nationals come in. They can't do that on their own say-so. But can a state right. take actions when they realize their state is being overwhelmed by this invasion of illegal well, aliens? They, 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 well, hold they, on. They, let me finish the question, Josh. 
once they've crossed that border and Border Patrol has said, yeah, you can go on into the country, can Texas do anything about it? Because these illegal aliens are now in the state of Texas and they're incredibly problematic. But yeah, they, they, they place enormous pressures on the, the social structure. We do not in the United States for good reason delineate when somebody says I'm poor and I'm hungry and I need shelter or I need a job. We don't usually have, except for very few jobs, say, well, are you legally in the United States? So there's the whole problem of that. Let me give an example many of your listeners might be familiar with. Anyone who has driven south on I-5 out of Oregon into California has hit a roadblock. The California Agricultural Department runs a roadblock on I-5 and stops all cars coming in and ask you if you have pears and stuff like that. It's not terribly invasive, but it is an example of the kind of authority a state can do. They can stop cars. They can prevent um, certain things coming into the state because it, it directly deals with the state of California, in this case, their agricultural industry. The state of Texas could do similarly. What they can't do, at least under the current meaning of the Constitution, is basically say, we're the, the federal government is doing inadequate border patrol, so we're going to take over that for them. They may be doing inadequate border patrol, but they can't take it over for them. So in other words, if a president decides we're just going to throw the border open, which he has, then the states well, are powerless, even though, even though the Constitution gives the federal government the affirmative responsibility of safeguarding states from invasion. Am I correct? Yes, they, they, the, the, the federal government has a whole bunch of obligations to... You know, to no, no, but just do States. deal with that one specifically. Does the Constitution say it's the job of the federal government to defend all of the states against invasion? And could you qualify yes, yes. ten to yes. 12,000 fighting-age males a day coming into your sta- through your no, state as an invasion? No, I don't think it's an invasion. I think it's, it's a, a real mess. And I think the federal government should do more uh, about it. But it's not the same thing as giving the, uh, the state of Texas the authority to do what the federal government in this case is not doing. Um, and, and in fact, despite the Democrats claim that, that, that or many political Democrats claim in Congress that they're for open borders, the fact of the matter is that even the Biden administration has put a lot of money into detention because we can't have open borders that's crazy and it would be uh, it is economically devastating not just for texas but for the whole united states economically and and criminally devastating and, let me and, let and me more, jump no because we had talked about that we had planned to talk to you about alec baldwin i was glad to see him right. indicted i think he committed manslaughter is this one likely to stick because he had the gun in his hand they've now proved that the gun the trigger had to be pulled and a young lady uh, Halia Hutchins uh, ended up dead. Should he be convicted yeah, and, and the, based the on those circumstances? Almost, almost the director almost died. Yeah, it was really, really klutzy behavior by the newly elected district attorney um, in, in Mexico who, who first appointed herself and then appointed someone who had already accepted a seat in the uh, New Mexico state legislature. You can't hold two offices in the United States. You can't be a, a deputy DA and a legislator. So Baldwin basically looked like for a while he was getting away with it. And what's even worse about that is they charged two other people. One was the armor, a young woman who is responsible for this, and the other is one of the the the, uh, the people involving props. That man has already made a deal and pled guilty. So there was a possibility until this came out that Baldwin would skate entirely with no responsibility. 
So, yeah, I'm glad he's been indicted. Well, but do you think they can make it stick? Is this a legally winnable case? I watched an interview on ABC with George Stephanopoulos. I mean, the kind of thing that as a lawyer, I would just want to crawl under a table if he was my client. He said, Baldwin, the actor, the producer said, I never pulled that trigger. I, I never pulled that trigger. That gun fired without me ever pulling the trigger. That's that is literally impossible in physics. And there is film of him picking up the gun. It's what's called a single action weapon, meaning that you know you have to cock it, yep. and then you have to depress the hammer, yep. the trigger, which in turn makes the hammer go down. So it took. You know, there's going to be no question what he did. He didn't do it intentionally, or he'd be charged with murder. No, but but hold on, one last question: If you were his attorney, would you put him on the stand to defend himself in a case like this? Not after what I've seen of his behavior. I'd be ter- I, I would tell him to, uh, you know, hide behind the Fifth Amendment and uh, and, and say that he, he's invoking it. Maybe he can go to prison. That's Josh Marquis, former district attorney. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your calls at eight six six. Hey, Lars. That's 866-439-5277. You've got the Lars Larson Show. Talk to Lars, 866-HEY-LARS. Welcome back to the program. Glad to have you with me and always glad to get to your calls. And I'll do that in just a moment. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Questions there every day at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. But I want to talk to Mark Davis, who's been a great friend of the program. He's president of a company called Data Productions. He's been working with voter data uh, for almost 30 years now. And he's been qualified and admitted to testify as an expert witness when it comes to voter data analytics and residency issues in court cases involving disputed elections five times over the last 20 years. And we talked to Mark last week about the resolution of a case. And I want Mark to explain all the details we couldn't get to then. Because, Mark, one of the most frequent challenges I get from callers to this show is they say, Lars, uh, the 2020 election was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. The votes were all legitimate. Uh, there might have been a mistake or two here and there, but nothing sizable at all. And that's been established in 60 different cases. And I always end up explaining that most of those cases were resolved by, um, you know, technicalities, meaning you don't have standing. You filed it too late. You filed it too early. Your case involving data out of one of the key states from the 2020 election, Georgia, uh, was was different. And you were actually dragged into court weren't you yeah let me back up on something that you said a minute ago sure i get very frustrated with that argument as well um the thing that i think is important to understand is that most vote fraud goes completely undetected what little of it is detected may get reported to the county or may not may get reported to the secretary of state or may not may get referred to the state election board 
or may not. The state election board may or may not refer it to the attorney general's office for prosecution, which is where many of those cases go to die. So to sit there and claim that evidence of vote fraud only results from convictions is a nonsense argument. It's like if I go deer hunting and I don't see a deer, can I conclude deer don't exist? You know, if, if I don't see somebody cross the, the border illegally myself, if I don't lay eyes on it, can I sit here and claim that illegal immigration isn't happening? I mean, it's, just, it's a nonsense argument. In all the cases that I've testified in, <clears throat> it's been my job most of the time to point out these issues and bring them to the attention of the attorney. And I've watched them subpoena these voters, bring them in, put them on the stand, question them under oath in an elections dispute. And I've watched these people, both voters and elections officials, admit to violations of the law under oath on the witness stand. I have yet to see the first one prosecuted. So when people drag that nonsense argument out to me, it just galls me. But anyway, on to what we were here to talk about. Yeah, let's talk Um, about FF versus TTV and explain to my audience what that is. All right, I need to sell a little background. Um, The 1993 National Voter Registration Act causes every state in this union to keep lots of trash on the voter rolls. And in 2020, when President Trump lost, I got curious and I started doing some of the same analysis that I do in some of these court cases. And I found that there were about 110,000 voters that had residency issues going into that election. Most of those voters did not attempt to vote unlawfully in the county they used to live in, but the data indicated about 35,000 had. So Now, just so people understand that, so you live in Atlanta, you move to some town outside of Atlanta, you, you don't quickly update your voter registration, you have a residency issue. But most of, and that would describe a lot of those people who may have moved, didn't update their voter reg, but they didn't try to vote, so no issue, right? Am I understanding that right? Right. Yeah, so if we move jurisdictions, which in Georgia's case is a county or municipality, we have to re-register where we move to because our entire ballot is based on where we live. And so lying about your residency when you go to cast a ballot is a felony under state law, but it's also a violation of federal law in the prohibited act section of the Voting Rights Act. If you lie about your residency with a federal race on the ballot, it's a federal offense. And that's any federal race, including statewide races like president or U.S. Senate. A lot of people think, well, why should your county matter for voting for president? Well, that's not the only race on the ballot. So anyway. um, But when you say it's a federal offense, let's make it clear, Mark, it's a federal felony, isn't it? uh, Isn't it a false swearing? Okay. Yeah, if anybody wants to look it up, just go to the Voting Rights Act and look for the Prohibited Act section. It's right there. I think it's paragraph C. Um, But anyway, it's it's without question uh, a crime to lie to elections officials about where you live so that you can obtain a ballot under false pretenses. And what the data indicated is that we had a lot of that going on in the general election. So I turned that data over to the Trump attorneys 
and then I turned my attention to the upcoming Senate runoff because, if you remember, control of the U.S. Senate was at stake. Yep. And there was a lot of chatter going on about Democrats trying to get folks that didn't really live here to come vote. A lot of it was just that in jest or mocking or what have you. But um, I was very genuinely concerned about residency issues, and so was True the Vote. And unbeknownst to us, uh, me and a former FBI agent teamed up, and we started working on challenges. And then True the Vote came to town, and they had already been working on challenges. And they had come, come into town to meet with their Secretary of State to talk about them. And Derek went and had dinner with them that night. I met him the next day. But it was really two separate sets of challenges. Ours was focused on people that had arguably already cast a ballot in the general election with residency issues. True the Votes was a much larger, broader challenge. But they named us in a press release, and Fair Fight decided to sue everybody in the press release. So Fair Fight is Stacey Abrams' uh, election group, right? Yeah, and the lawsuit came to us from Mark Elias and showed up on our doors on Christmas Eve. Wonderful Christmas present from the Democrats. No doubt. But anyway, so um, they had alleged, they compared us to the Klan. They had alleged that we were targeting black and brown people. They had claimed that we were engaged in voter intimidation. And the problem with all that, those arguments were nonsense. We did not discriminate in any way. If the data indicated somebody had a residency issue, then they stayed on the challenge list. We didn't care what their race was, what their political affiliation was. We didn't care about anything but what was right and what was wrong. And there was no demographic targeting. Nobody talked to a single one of these voters. In court, they couldn't point out any of the defendants or co-defendants. All they knew was the name True the Vote. Didn't even know who we were. Never met us. (laughs) It was ridiculous. And Mark, I got to warn you, end, we're close to we're, we're close to the break. We've got a little less than a minute left. What was the end okay. result of the court? The end result was we had an Obama appointed judge that handed down 100 percent fair ruling. I didn't I didn't agree with everything he said in it, but I cannot argue with this fair mindedness or his fidelity to the law. There was no evidence that they presented that there was any voter intimidation. And I think it's important for people to know this because almost every state has challenged statutes. So people should be encouraged by this verdict because if you feel the need to file a challenge in your own state, look up your state's challenge statutes, get familiar with it, and get familiar with the grounds for filing challenges. Do look for these residency issues. They do. And they are there. Mark Davis from Data Productions, who won his case, when he was challenged, saying, you're a racist member of the Klan. Now we're just working on whether or not the votes were legal or not. Back in a moment, you got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. is McGruff the Crime Dog. 
stream the Lars Larson Show live at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I will have to admit to you that it has been years since I overdrafted a check. But when it has happened to me, believe me, I'm as irritated as anybody is when you get the uh, 40 or $50 fee that you get for writing a check for more money than you have in your bank account. In fact, in most places, it's actually a criminal offense to knowingly overdraft. Most people do it unknowingly. But would limiting overdraft fees end up costing consumers in the long run? That is what is being proposed right now. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which I happen to believe is an unconstitutional agency because it was created by the Congress but doesn't exactly answer the Congress, proposes to amend a bunch of regulations, including regulations E and Z. Believe me, I'm not enough of a lawyer or an expert to know what those are, to update exceptions for overdraft credit provided by very large financial institutions saying that the extension of overdraft credit has to adhere to consumer protections. They want to limit the amount the bank can charge you for having an overdraft. Now, on its face, I know a lot of people would say, well, that sounds like a great idea because you remember the last time you overdrafted and what it cost you. So I thought we'd go to our friend John Berlau, who's a senior fellow and director of financial policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. John, good to have you back and, uh, and glad to have your expertise. Uh, good to be back, uh, Lars. Always good to be always good to be on your show and talk about what we're doing at Competitive Enterprise Institute, CEI.org. Well, and, and by the way, so I, I don't know what the current average overdraft fee is. I usually figure it's around $50. It's a punishing fee if you happen to overdraft a check. And this proposal from CFPB sounds like they want to limit it down to maybe a couple of dollars. Does that make sense long-term for consumers? No, it, it really doesn't. I mean, it's the fee is punishing, but it, it, like you alluded to, it used to be people would, except for favored company, uh, customers, generally get punished, including the threat of criminal, you know, prosecution for going over their checking account, writing un, even unknowingly writing uh, bad checks. And this, the auto, the way the system was automated, meant that you know it saved people from any, from either both criminal prosecution and. Uh, or an inconvenience and embarrassment, like people, you know, having to take things back at a grocery store line, um, and uh, and also um, uh, just you know not having you know, people having people see see it uh, uh, rejected. And uh, the interesting thing is also since 2010, uh, customers at banks have had to opt into it. So if you know if you don't like it, people who don't like it when they're hit, they can always opt out of it. But a lot of people. Are, are choosing to, to do this, you know, having this just as a service uh, just in case. And if this were eliminated, also just other, uh, either, um, uh, uh, you know, some of, the, uh, some of the benefits, some of the interest rates banks pay or other fees might, would have to be risen, for, uh, uh, particularly for community banks and credit unions. So, in other words, if somebody goes in and sets up a bank account and they say, do you want to have uh, overdraft protection? And you say, okay, I'd like to have that. Well, if you overdraft a check, it's going to cost you 50 or 60 bucks. Well, I don't want that. And they say, oh, okay, then we'll just tell the person you wrote the check to that you wrote a bad check and deny the check altogether. That's the alternative, isn't it? I mean, that basically is. I mean, people, home economics, they should, you know, have, you know, maybe like you and I were growing up, home economics course where, you know, people learn, you know, sort of how to balance their, uh, their checkbooks, but I mean, this has been providing a 
providing a convenience. It's a convenient fee at the same time. It's you know it is meant to be punitive, so you don't you don't do it again. And it means that you know banks can you know um, uh, don't have to charge as much for some of the other uh, services like you know low balance fees, um, other things. If uh, the community banks and you know uh, small credit unions warned they would have to you know charge consumers more for other things or or lower interest rates or other things if if, if this if this were eliminated. And I mean, talk about I mean the really I think uh, when we talk about you know punishing fees or junk fees, Biden notices doing nothing about say, IRS penalties where if you're a day late on your uh, taxes, you might have to pay 25% of what you owe. So they're very selective in what they look at as far as junk fees. Well, in fact, think about that. Say you owed the IRS $1,000 and you say, I got the check in one day late. How much can that be? Oh, $250. that's, That's an insane level of fee, but that's the government doing it. So they seem to see that as different than the bank saying, Keep an eye on your checking account. If you write a check that's bigger than what you have in there, we'll cover the check, but it's going to cost you 50 bucks, plus you have to make up the money that you wrote that, that you didn't have. It, it's, 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 and because it's 50 or 60 bucks, it tends to get people's attention. If they lower it to three bucks, do you have any doubt in your mind that an awful lot of people who are so inclined will just say, oh, I'll just overdraft the fee. The fee is nothing. So it's yes, three it's, bucks. It's I'll, very I'll, similar I'll to it. an. To another um, another rule the CFPB has proposed as far as like being you know late fees saying you can't charge more than eight dollars on late fees of the credit card I don't know where they get this but basically they're saying you can't make you know you can't make a profit or in some case being being below cost so yeah that would encourage that kind of that kind of behavior and if and I mean people some people are doing this you know sort of as a as a loan and that's and that's their prerogative but we shouldn't you know we shouldn't you know favor them at the expense of, you know, people who most of the time, I mean, do do balance their checkbooks. Well, and I'm guessing, John, that the, the economics of it are that if there are people who are then incentivized to write bad checks, so it's Friday night, uh, your paycheck doesn't come till Monday or Tuesday, and you figure, I need some money to either get groceries or go out with my friends on Friday night, so you write an overdraft check for $100, and you do it knowingly. You know you don't have $100. I mean, a dollar or two might be understandable, but you've overdrafted by $100. And you say, yeah, and I'll have to pay 3 bucks to get $100 on Friday night, and then I hope I make it to the bank in time on Monday or have the electronic deposit in time on Monday or Tuesday. But even if I don't, I'm only out 3 bucks. It, it seems like it's going to invite that. And if it ends up costing the bank money, who's going to end up paying? It's all the other customers who don't overdraft, isn't it's it? Banks, like with late payment fees, like with things like interchange fees for what they charge retailers for credit cards. I mean, you you know, you'd lose things like, you know, in, in the case of credit card, credit card rewards. Um, uh, uh, and in this case, you know, uh, other fees, including like balance fees, just, just might be higher. It, it, everyone overall or you would receive you know less of uh less of something like an interest payment and banks do compete on you know what they will charge for overdraft so i would you know I'll tell all your listeners to shop around as far as banks and uh and credit unions because not all of them charge you know like, like 50 bucks some of them you know will spell out what they'll charge and it may be like 30 or 20 bucks or it may be you would get a certain amount of for, uh, forgiveness but but to eliminate this uh, entirely or to put these sharp restrictions, the uh, smaller credit unions and community banks have warned that this would really 
hit them because unlike the big banks, the Wall Street banks, they don't really have, you know, others, other sources of revenue as far as like with high-flying loans and, uh, or derivatives or things like that. Hey, John, tell me this. I already said I think CFPB is an unconstitutional agency. Now, whether you agree with that or not, can they push this thing through without even going to the people's representatives on Capitol Hill? Unfortunately, now they can until the Supreme Court settles this, and uh, which they should by the by the summer. But the, the, some of the good news is the Fifth Circuit has found that this funding mechanism, in which they get, they get funding from the Federal Reserve, bypassing Congress, and even the Fed has no say. The Fifth Circuit has enjoined some of the things that that the CFPB could do, so people could before before the Supreme Court ruling challenge this and say that the Supreme the, the CFPB lacks authority, and I would encourage you know banks and uh, credit unions and consumers if they can if they're concerned about this to uh, to do this, maybe join in to, uh, such a suit. But yes, it really is. It's a. Uh, it's also. I mean, they don't have the feedback you know on rules like these. From- no, because they don't have to listen to the people at all. They're just a crazy government agency that can do what it likes with almost no oversight from us or the Congress. John Berlau at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, CEI.org. Back in a moment, you got the Lars Larson Show. You can't get enough, Lars. Podcast every show at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. Now, I think there are certain things that happen that amount to a canary in the coal mine. And one of them has just happened in Oakland, California. And it has to do with a a place I've uh, had a sandwich at from time to time called In-N-Out Burger, in-N-Out Burger has been in Oakland, California for 18 years, and now it is pulling out. And why are they pulling out? They say that the uh, location they have in Oakland, California, is still profitable. The problem is it's so dangerous, not just for the customers of that burger chain, but for the people who work there, that In-N-Out Burger says they have no choice. They are leaving behind what has been a profitable location and still is a profitable location because they can't take the dangers that are presented by the crime, the increasing crime in Oakland, just like violent crime has increased in so many places in America. I'll get into the details of that in just a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's here every single day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. So if you disagree, you get to go first. If you'd rather send an email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our X poll. Used to call it the Twitter poll. Now it's the X poll. And that has to do with an equally contentious matter. And that is, do you support having a separate national anthem for black Americans? The NFL has announced its pregame lineup for the Super Bowl this year. The league got a lot of criticism over the years because they play the black national anthem. It's a song called Lift Every Voice and Sing, but is widely known as the black national anthem. There is one national anthem for America, the Star Spangled Banner. 
The only people who benefit when we divide Americans up by skin color, by ethnicity, by gender, or any other way is politicians. Politicians get good results out of that. The rest of us do not. So do I support having a separate national anthem for black Americans displayed at one of the biggest attended events in the country every year than the Super Bowl? No, I don't. And I'll vote against it. You can vote any way you like. You'll find it at Lars Larson Show on X. You'll also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. Now, I've confessed to you my dog in the and my dog in the fight because I actually like In-N-Out Burger. I haven't been in one for a while. Haven't been through the drive-through either. But In-N-Out Burger's only location in Oakland, California, is now closing because they could no longer handle the risk of workers and patrons because the city of Oakland has been absolutely beset by violent crime. So they will close in March. And the thing I really like to to, uh, emphasize here, they're making money at this location. In other words, it's the one thing that most retailers would like to be able to say, we operate a store there and we make a profit at the end of the week. Uh, They're going to stop. The chief operating officer, Denny Warnick, says uh, they announced it over the weekend. He said, look, we've been there. He says, despite taking repeated steps to create safer conditions, our customers and our associates, that means the people who work at In-N-Out Burger, are regularly victimized by car break-ins, property damage, theft, and armed robberies. Uh, CBS uh, San Francisco quotes these folks as saying, look, The location remains a busy and a profitable one for the company, but our top priority has to be the safety and well-being of our customers and associates. We can't ask them to visit or to work in an unsafe environment. In just one year, from 2022 to 2023, burglaries jumped 22%. Motor vehicle theft went up 44%. And they're giving the workers the chance to transfer to other stores. But in the meantime, that one's closing down. I would add that to the list that is now getting longer and longer all the time. We've seen Starbucks flee its home city, largely the city of Seattle, where Starbucks was founded. And they say, well, we're closing down a bunch of our outlets. Not all of them, but a lot of them. We've seen big retailers that have pulled out of town saying there's just too much crime going on here. So Is this the canary in the coal mine, the one that indicates big cities are becoming so dangerous that even big retailers who are making money have decided we no longer want to do business there? That's a scary sign coming in this Biden economy. Now, to your calls. Let's go first to Ron. Hey, Ron, welcome to the program. You heard me talking about the Black National Anthem. I have never understood why any black Americans would want to set themselves into a separate group by saying, we don't we don't sing the Star-Spangled Banner, we sing the Black National Anthem instead. Do you understand that? Well, I'll tell you where I'll start from. Just like in and out leaving from that area, Berkeley, Oakland area, I was there this I mean, it's it just the Angela Davis Marxist mindsets. They want to grip like Maxine Waters or be like this in Betty Kennedy at 25000 or $50,000 a speech. It's all about them. As long as they keep dividing and keep doing... Woodrow Wilson's and LBJ's division of, like FDR did, thank God my foster fathers were Tuskegee Airmen that helped protect the people like Donald George Malak, the original Banner Brothers, or even 
Henry Yoshikai's brother who fought on Anzio. It's a divisive nature right out of the book of Marxism. It's meant to divide, to keep the grifters of both sides of the blue jackbutt party. You know what I'm saying? And I'm I do know what you're you. saying, but Ron, tell me this. Why aren't, why aren't influential black organizations that purport to say we represent people like Ron, why aren't they standing up saying we don't need a separate national anthem? We're, pr we're proud to be Americans. We're glad to sing the, the Star Spangled Banner and we don't need a separate song for us because separate but equal was an idea that went out a long, long time ago and for good reason. The reason they won't stand up, the LeBrons, the Dwayne Wade's, the people, you would think Denzel, I mean, Candace Owens speaks against it. I do know that. I know that Thomas Sowell don't like it. I know the late Walter Williams was around. He wouldn't like it. But a lot of them, because of dumbing down of education through the LBJ plan of the Great Society since the, since the 70s, look at the results in the black communities. Look how we're separating now. Look how everything else, going on to Harvard, and the other Ivy League schools by, by such trashy, profitable, all-about-me, selfish, godless people that chose to throw away their history and just think that they're above history, just like what the Marxists, going back to the Fabian Socialists of the 1880s, has said and spoken. And that's all I have to say about it, but we need I, Jesus I, and God to save this country. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Ron, thank you very much. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and consider that. What are the signs going on in your neck of the woods where stores are leaving? And soon we're going to hear politicians saying, well, gosh, there's no place to fill your prescriptions. There's no place to buy your groceries. There's no place to buy your gasoline. And apparently some of them are very happy with the result. Drive the profit-making businesses away, drive the jobs away, and let America fall apart. That is Bidenomics. And you've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Looking for a new way to get...